welcome, friends, fans, and colleagues. Um, it's Wednesday night, so you know it must be Karen Tate and Voices of the Sacred Feminine. I'm so glad to have you um, tuning in. Uh, whether you're tuning in live or catching us later from the archives. I uh, just wanted to give you a quick heads up. Uh, as we move into the new year, I am going to be changing the time of the show. Uh, the show is going to actually be at either 11 a.m. or 1 p.m. on Wednesdays. Pacific time during the day instead of 6 p.m. Pacific uh, as it's been for quite a while. Uh, that works better for me and it also enables me to offer interviews to um, my guests that call in from uh, the UK. And that way I don't have to I keep changing the time uh, and they don't have to call in in the middle of the night. So. Um, if uh, you have not yet uh, clicked the follow button on my show page, which uh, puts reminders of the show uh, in your uh, email inbox, you might want to do that uh, because uh, then you will uh, have a real convenient little uh, link there in your box to connect to each week's show. Um, or just make a mental note, whatever works for you. Uh, but uh, I, And I know most of you do listen to the archives, so so it, uh, listen from the archives, so this might not be um, something you're particularly worried about. Um, but I uh, just wanted to give you a heads up. If you're looking for the show at 6 p.m., um, it will no longer be on at 6 p.m. Uh, in the new year. It's going to be on at 11 a.m. or 1 p.m. All right. So now that we got that um, that business out of the way, um, I am uh, happy to have a, a kind of a different show for you tonight. Um, a little, uh, you know, off the beaten path, I guess, from uh, the type of uh, topic I usually cover. But I thought this was interesting, especially maybe for us baby boomers. Um, you can hear my guest in the background there. Uh, I think she's probably thumbing through her uh, pages of notes, uh, but I have with me tonight uh, Susan Shumsky, and uh, we're going to be talking about um, the 1960s and uh, uh, how that revolution uh, changed the world. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Susan uh, before we start uh, you know, actually uh, picking our brain here. Um, Susan Shumsky, uh, she's dedicated her life to helping people take command of their lives in, uh, in highly effective, powerful, positive ways. Uh, she's a highly respected spiritual teacher and best-selling author of 17 books in English and 34 in other languages. She's won 31 prestigious book awards. Uh, she's a pioneer in the human potential field. She's taught meditation, prayer, affirmation, and intuition to thousands worldwide for over 50 years. Uh, her books include uh, Miracle Prayer, Divine Revelation, Exploring Meditation, Ascension, Instant Healing, The Power of Auras, Awaken Your Third Eye, Awaken Your Divine Intuition, Color Your Chakras, The Big Book of Chakras, Third Eye Meditations, Earth Energy Meditations, and I think the one she's going to tap into tonight um, for tonight's topic, uh, her memoir uh, titled Maharishi and Me. Uh, she's also the founder of Divine Revelation, a unique field-proven technology for contacting the divine presence, hearing and testing the inner voice, and receiving clear divine guidance. Uh, her websites are drsusan.org and divinetravels.com. 
So, Susan, welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. I'm so glad to be here with you tonight. Well, I'm glad to have you. And, uh, you know, I didn't get a chance to look this up before the show started. I was in a little bit of a rush to get home and not be late. But, you know, I think you've been on the show before about one of these other topics, which is more more what we normally talk about than tonight's topic. Am I right, Susan? Yes, I was on your show before. Indeed. I thought so. I thought so. Well, you know, I'm I'm glad to have you uh, on the show talking about this uh, different topic. You know, it's it's not um, quite so spiritual or uh, new agey. It's a little more, I guess, historical. Um, you know, it really kind of grabbed me. Uh, because I'm a fan of the Beatles, and um, you know I'm really interested in uh, what it was like for them, uh, you know, at the ashram of the Maharishi uh, Mahesh Yogi, I think. Um, and I, I assume from the title of your book, were you there at the same time the Beatles were? I was not there at the same time as the Beatles. I was there in 1970, and the Beatles were there in 1968. I did apply to the course that the Beatles ended up going to in Rishikesh, but I was not accepted on the course because I was a bit too young. At that time, Maharishi only allowed people who had already graduated college and who were at least 24 years old to attend his teacher training courses But then in 1970, for that course that I went on, he decided that he would allow the younger students to come. So the course that I was on in Rishikesh, there were quite a number of kids from college, college kids, and um, quite about the same age that I was. Okay, all right. Well, Well, the Beatles and the Maharishi are just sort of part of tonight's uh, show, um, it, it, but um, you know, let's. Uh, I guess let's uh, start at the beginning. You know, um, it, you know, from your perspective, uh, the '60s revolution. Um, you know, how did it change the world? Uh, I mean, it almost feels like it's forgotten now with everything we uh, have going on. Tell me how I'm wrong. Well, the reality is that. This spiritual revolution of the 1960s continues today. Uh, it, it definitely changed the world in so many ways. Uh, before 19, let's say 1950. In 1950, there was no mantra, there was no yoga, there was no Eastern philosophy, there were no martial arts centers. When you went to the grocery store, the only fresh food you would find would be lettuce, tomatoes, oranges, and apples, everything else, and meat. Everything else would be in cans or frozen. Uh, there was no organic foods. I mean, the, the world is a completely different place now. And that has to do with the fact that those of us in the 60s were seeking spiritual experiences. We were interested in this whole idea of healthy living, healthy diet. We were fascinated by the idea of organic foods. We wanted to live a healthier lifestyle. We wanted to 
learn how to meditate and to reach higher states of consciousness. And that's what it was all about. It wasn't so much about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was, although that was a part of it, it was really those of us who were flower children, which was what I was, we were anti-war, first of all, you know, make love, not war. And there was this idea of turn on, tune in, and drop out, which was from our mentors at the time, who were Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert. Richard Alpert later became Ram Dass. And they wrote a book called The Psychedelic Experience, which was based upon the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So those of us who were living in the San Francisco Bay Area, like me, we were seeking these altered states of consciousness through LSD, through marijuana, through the psychedelic drugs. It wasn't about getting high, getting, getting uh, loaded, or getting stoned. It was about really experiencing these higher states of consciousness. That's what we were trying to do. And well, as a result of that... Well, oh, you know... Go on. Well, and, and honestly, um, I, I stand corrected because, you know, I thought, well, well first of all, I'm just a, 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 teeny, you know, a, a teeny bit younger. Um, I was born in 57, so I sort of missed that wave, unfortunately. Um, and I thought maybe that I just didn't grow up uh, knowing about the yoga and the meditation and all of that because I grew up in the Bible Belt. Um, you know, I didn't realize that we haven't always had that for a very long time. I didn't realize the 60s brought us that. Absolutely. The 60s did uh, bring that to us, Karen, and it, it was a revolution. It was a revolution in, of consciousness. That was the revolution. It was anti-war it was peace, you know, give peace a chance. It was um, all you need is love. The thing, <laughs> I'm quoting the Beatles here because the Beatles reflected the sentiments of the time. And as a result of that, the tw- 21st century is completely different than the 20th century. The 20th century was basically a bloodbath of war after war where uh, – for example, World War One, where t- over 20 million people were slaughtered. World War Two, where over uh, oh, I'm sorry, 40 million in World War One and 70 million in World War Two. So war after war after war of huge, ginormous proportions, and then now we're in the 21st century, where there is virtually, I mean, it's. it's complete world peace compared to what 20th century was. And I know some people might disagree, but if you actually look at the statistics, you're going to find that the 21st century is a world at peace compared to what it was back then. And this all had to do with introducing uh, peace on earth, Uh, which was the philosophy of the hippie generation of the 60s and introducing the methods to get to peace on earth, which is 
meditation where people are becoming more calm and all of the other things that were brought to us in the 60s that have caused the society to be more at peace, the world to be more at peace. So let me ask you, um, are we also talking about this being the time that, you know, feminism starts to, um, you know, rear its head and the bra burning? Was that the 60s too, or is that a little bit later? I am so glad you brought that up, Karen, because I didn't even mention feminism. This was a time in the 60s when feminism came to the forefront and it wasn't just a revolution of consciousness. It was also a revolution in women's rights and huge, huge revolution in, in women's rights. And because you have to understand that it was illegal to have an abortion back then. You'd have to go into a back alley and or, or use a, a clothes hanger or some horrible thing because it was illegal to to have an abortion. And so women's issues, women's rights definitely came to the forefront in the 60s with Gloria Steinem and the whole the whole revolution of of women's reproductive rights, uh, women's rights in the workplace. So many things. It was a different world back then, completely different world. Women were subservient to men. They were supposed to be in the kitchen cooking the cookies and that was it that was their aspiration as a matter of fact i was born in 1948 and when i grew up i was told by my parents there's no need for you to really be so concerned about higher education because you're you're just a woman you're going to be a, a, a housewife that's that's your aspiration so you know i mean it seems ridiculous to us now because the world is so different. And this is all due to uh, the spiritual pioneers who changed the world in the 60s. Well, let me ask you a few other things. Do you remember where we were at with birth control pills then? Um, were were they, um, were, you know, could you get those? Uh, was that something that was common or was that another uh, taboo back then? Actually, Karen, birth control pills were definitely the thing. Uh, we used those, and also IUDs were the thing back then. So, yeah, birth control was definitely acceptable at that time. There was nothing against birth control because the issue of um, abortion, non-abortion, those kinds of issues were not really uh, part of the culture at that time. It's only become part of the culture in recent years, this whole uh, let's go bomb the abortion clinics. Then. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Well, and, you know, I, I am trying to think of a book. Um, I know it's a really famous book written by one of the, the early feminists. Um, uh, God, you know, I want to call it the Feminist Manifesto, but I don't. I don't think that was the title. Um, it, it, uh, but basically, it was about the role of women. And um, you know, I recall, um, you know, there was this whole thing because you know, girls would uh, graduate with this great education from Brown University, and you know, then what did they have to look forward to except 
you know, maybe be a teacher or a housewife or a teacher. And, you know, I, I'm thinking of Beaver Cleaver's mother. You know, they had to become one of those women, you know, with the pearls and the high heels, vacuum and the floor. And I think, um, you know, the, 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 you know, why that book was um, so popular was, you know, it talked about how women felt so trapped and, you know, how it, it just demoralized so many women. I know my mother was one of these women that ended up, um, you know, uh, taking what they called at the time nerve pills uh, because, you know, I think their lives were, um, you know, such a hopeless dead end. Uh, and I think that became common that, you know, women dealt with this frustration um, you know, you know that was that was one way out. You know, they kind of just medicated themselves, uh, you know, to deal with um, their lot in life, so to speak. Does does that sound familiar to you at all? Well, it's like the Rolling Stones song, "Mother's Little Helper." That is really that epitomizes that whole whole thing of of medicating themselves because of, of being trapped, being really. Uh, being in jail in this relationship where they are subservient, they're basically a servant, they're slaves, and that's really what it was like back then. I mean, some women, it was fine with them, um, they embraced it. Okay, you're back. We lost you for a moment. Can you hear me? Oh, uh, I hear you perfectly, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, so I don't know uh, how much of that you heard. I was talking about Let me tell you. We, yes, yes. The last thing we heard was Mother, Mother's Little Helper, that song by the Rolling Stones kind of epitomized that, uh, that hopelessness. And then, then I kind of lost you for about 10 seconds. Oh, yeah. So I was talking about how women were slaves. They were subservient. And for some women, it was fine. They didn't mind. They were in a happy marriage, and, they, and their desire was just raising children, which is great. That's a great profession. But there are some women like me who never really had that kind of aspiration. I've never been married. I've never had children. And thank goodness I was, I was born at a time when women started to have some rights and women started to be able to have their own careers because otherwise I would have been very, very unhappy. So, it, yes, it was really different back then, and women were considered second-class citizens, and, and they, they definitely were marginalized in every way. Well, and, you know, I think we forget that. I mean, you you are making me realize we forget that. And um, and really, I think we've probably taken for granted how far we've come, even though it's not anywhere near far enough. So maybe, just maybe, um, we can have a, uh, you know, we can understand a little bit why there's, you know, why in some corners of the country, you know, the religious right is what I'm thinking of, um, especially men, you know, they would probably love to go back to those times instead of deal with women on this new um, playing field. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's intimidating to be a man these days 
because they were raised to believe that they are the knight in shining armor and that they must be the leader and that they must never show their emotions and all of these things. And now the women are coming up and competing with the men. And so it's, it's a confusing time for gender roles. Let's just put it that way. It's, it's kind of true, true. So, so well, you, you mentioned yourself, you know, you were childless by choice, um, as am I. Um, and, uh, but how did, how did you participate in the revolution? What were you doing back then? I was being a hippie <laughs> and dressing outrageously and being anti-war, but not protesting, not participating in the protest. I was more interested in let's learn how to meditate. Let's experience these higher states of consciousness. I was more interested in going within and realizing the, the true self. And so I ended up actually living in an ashram for 20 years with my guru, who was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the guru of many famous people, including the Beatles and Mike, Mike Love of the of the Beach Boys and Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones and Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones and uh, so many others, Deepak Chopra, John Gray, Doug Henning, Andy Kaufman. There's a long list of very famous, famous people who practiced transcendental meditation at that time and onward. So I was interested in creating world peace. And Maharishi used to say, in order for the trees to be green, the forest must be, in order for the forest to be green, the trees must be green. In order for the world to be at peace, the individuals in the world must be at peace. That made a whole lot of sense to me. I liked the idea of let's make everybody peaceful, and in that way we can create world peace because you're never going to create world peace through people being stressed and unhappy and warring and criminal, criminal minds and warring minds. People have to become peaceful. So that's why Maharishi dedicated his life to teaching as many people as possible how to meditate. So he trained 40,000 teachers, and they taught 6 million people to meditate. So I participated in that. That was, my, that was, that was what I was interested in doing. So, um, well, well, I think you just said, you know, uh, your guru's influence. Um, was there was there more to what he did? I mean, not to say that isn't enough, um, but uh, you know, and, and did he do this all from India, or was he here in the United States? Um, is there anything more we need to know about him before I get to my other questions? Maharishi was born in India. He came to the West in 1959, and then he started to travel around the world over and over and over again. He traveled all over the world and spreaded his method of transcendental meditation. Uh, that was He was the founder of transcendental meditation. So he spread it all over the world, and he taught these big teacher training courses in Europe, in India at first, and then in Europe, and I was on his personal staff for six years in Europe when he was there, and also 
he was in the United States teaching in the United States. So he traveled everywhere and spent all of his time and dedication into spreading the method of transcendental meditation. So what was it like being in the ashram for two decades? Being in the ashram with Maharishi was pretty amazing, I have to say. Being in his presence on his staff for six years was super amazing because he had this amazing energy. And when you were in his presence, you could feel that just divine love would exude from him. You would feel this sense of being loved like you never experienced before. And it was very powerful to be in his presence. It's like you would receive spiritual energy through osmosis by being with him. You'd be very uplifted, and you would feel waves of bliss in your, in your energy field. But also through practicing the meditation, at least my experiences, were very uplifting and very peaceful, and it really saved my life. I, had, um, I was pretty much of a mess before I learned Transcendental Meditation. And so it changed me in all positive ways, and it was great for me. Um, I practiced it for over 20 years. I practice another form of meditation now that I teach in my book, but I loved uh, Transcendental Meditation, and I still recommend people to do that, especially if they're beginners. So um, I want to ask you about that. Did he... Um, it you know was he a devotee of a particular um, god or religion or uh, for him was it you know more a you know a um, a god you know a, a, in essence. Maharishi was from India. He was a Hindu, and he was part of the tradition of India, the ancient tradition of India, called the Shankaracharya tradition. And his guru, his uh, teacher, was named uh, Brahmananda Saraswati, and he was the religious leader of North India. There are four main religious leaders of India, and he was one of them. And Maharishi was very devoted to his guru, and and he was very strict Hindu as well. Uh, He didn't really teach Hinduism, though. He taught this meditation technique transcendental meditation and he tried to make it uh, palatable to the West so he didn't put any religious overtones into it Um, maybe in the beginning he did but not really after about 19 well I'd say 1970 it really became more of a uh, let's learn how to become peaceful uh, let's reduce stress get deep relaxation that was how it was framed. And, in fact, he did a lot of scientific research on it so that it would become very palatable to the West. A tremendous amount of scientific research. There were over 200, uh, I'm sorry, there were over 500 research studies done on the meditation technique as of the 1990s. Well, and, and uh, I mean, so he was out there really planting the seeds because, you know, back then it was nowhere near as uh, acceptable uh, as it is now. You know, I wonder if he ever envisioned that, you know, people would be doing it at their jobs, police would be doing it at the start of their shift, you know, that, that, it, would, that it would become such, such a... Um, 
you know, such a thing that was, uh, you know, accepted and realized as so necessary. Um, I mean, do you think he did? Yes, Karen, I totally think he did. As a matter of fact, he would talk about it all the time. He would talk about how the world is going into a new age. He called it the age of enlightenment. And he talked about how uh, more and more people were going to be doing this form of medis- any, any kind of meditation, but he especially was, was touting his form of meditation for people to do. And, yeah, he envisioned all of it, and he, he spoke about it. So he predicted it, yes, very much so. Is he still alive or has he passed away? He passed away in 2008 at age 90. Okay. Okay. And, uh, well, uh, I believe you said he influenced the Beatles in their music. Um, uh, You know, what particular songs, um, you know, come to mind? When the Beatles went to India in 1968 to study with Maharishi, they actually wrote the entire White Album while they were in India. So the songs of the White Album were greatly influenced by them being with Maharishi. Dear Prudence, Mother Nature's Son, Your Blues, Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey, Revolution, I'm So Tired, uh, Sexy Sadie, Continuing Story of Bungalow Bill, Blackbird, Get Back, Why Don't We Do It in the Road, um, Back in the USSR, Fool on the Hill. Um, Those are just a few of the songs that were written when they were in India and influenced also My Sweet Lord, Deridu, Sour Milk Sea, Not Guilty. Uh, those are some of the, more of the ones that were influenced by Maharishi and his teachings and so on. So, yeah, uh, so, so much of their music came from directly from their being with Maharishi in India. How long did they stay with them? Ringo stayed for 10 days, Paul stayed for five weeks, and John and George stayed for two months. We're talking about in Rishikesh, India, which was Maharishi's Meditation Academy. They learned Transcendental Meditation in in August, late August of 1967. It was on August 25th that they learned. They went to Bangor, North Wales. Actually, they learned on the 26th. Uh, They met Maharishi on the 24th. They traveled with Maharishi on a train up to Bangor, North Wales on the 25th. They learned meditation on the 26th, and then on the 27th of August, unfortunately, Brian Epstein died, so they had to rush back to London uh, because of that. That was their manager, Brian Epstein. So they learned it in in August of 67, and then they were very, very big advocates. They, They talked about it on all the media, and they said they that it had really changed their lives and they were big advocates and then they went to India in 68. The first song, major song about meditation that they wrote after they learned PM was the song Across the Universe. And in that song there yeah. is a line, Jay Guru Deva Om. 
Now, what that means, uh, Jay Guru Dev, was Maharishi, whenever he would greet anyone, he would never say hello, goodbye, have a nice day. He would always say, Jay Guru Dev, Jay Guru Dev, Jay Guru Dev. He would say that to everyone. And what that is, that translates as hail to the divine preceptor, hail to the divine guru, the divine teacher. And the teacher that he was talking about when he said Jay Guru Dev was his guru, Ramananda Saraswati. So he was giving honor and uh, praising his guru that he that had given him this teaching of meditation. So um, his guru, and forgive me, I, I I'm not familiar enough with their names. I, you know, to repeat it, I would I would murder his name. Uh, <laughs> was his guru as famous as? Um, yours and the Beatles? In India, yes, uh, Brahmananda Saraswati in the 1940s uh, up until 1953 when he died. He was extremely famous because he was the spiritual leader of the north of India. There were four major spiritual leaders, four Shankaracharyas in India. So he was very popular and very famous in India. Maharishi, though, attained worldwide fame, and he was on the cover of all the major magazines like Life, Look, Saturday Evening Post, Newsweek, and so on. And he was also on television quite often. He was on the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He was on Merv Griffin's show. So he was a very famous personality, and everybody knew him back then in the 1970s. He became very famous. Um, after the Beatles had already long gone, uh, he he became even more famous. So, and of course the Beatles, well, you know, that's the most, <laughs> most famous thing since the parting of the Red Sea. So, you know, I no, nothing is more famous than the Beatles. True, true. Um, we're going to take a break, Susan. Um, and uh, when we come back, I want to hear about that. Um, you know that famous falling out. Uh, you know that the Beatles had with him. Um, you know wh- what was really uh, behind uh, that story. Uh, so I want to talk about that when we get back. But uh, for listeners, um, uh, here's a clip. Uh, featuring some of the women in Joe Corson's film, uh, Dancing with Gaia. The psychic state is the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet. It's called the chthonic mind, the mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and divine were all connected, they were together, that there wasn't a separation. That's what we are trying to return to is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. That's the sacred. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. So that was a little snippet from Dancing with Gaia, which is available only at dancingwithgaia.com. 
so uh, I am here with uh, Dr. Susan Shumsky tonight. We're talking about the 60s revolution, and uh, we were chatting about the Beatles and uh, their guru and her guru, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And uh, Susan, you were, uh, I, I, I said when we came back we were going to chat about that famous falling out that uh, at least that's how you know we heard about it in the news. What happened between the Beatles and the Maharishi? Well, for for Ringo and Paul, everything was fine. They they stayed for a short time and they left and they were very happy about the whole thing. They had a great time. But John and George, though, they stayed for two months. And during that time, they were talking to Maharishi about doing a film. There was a film project on the table. And, in fact, Neil Aspinall came to Rishikesh to negotiate the film deal. They were going to do a film about Maharishi, about Transcendental Meditation, and about Maharishi's guru. And it would be Apple Corps, which is the, was the Beatles' corporation at that time, Apple. And Neil Aspinall negotiated it, and then he was sent back to London, and he was asked to put together a film crew. So Maharishi promised exclusive rights for the Beatles to do this film. But unfortunately, he had made the same promise to someone else, Four Star Productions of Hollywood. And the lawyer from Four Star Productions arrived in Rishikesh with a signed contract that promised exclusive rights to film Maharishi for the next five years. And then the film crew arrived in Rishikesh from Four Star Productions. And one morning, George, uh, John Lennon opened the door to his bungalow. He was bedheaded. He was bleary-eyed. He looks into the courtyard through his bleary eyes, and what does he see? He sees a cameraman and a director who yelled, action! <laughs> he didn't know anything about this, this film, so he and George became furious. They refused to leave their bungalow. They refused to go to the lecture hall where the light cameras and lights were set up. And it was not very long after that that they left the ashram in a big huff. But that was just one of the reasons why they left. There were three main reasons why they left. The other reason had to do with the fact that there was a woman named Rosalind, Rosalind Bonas, not Mia Farrow, by the way. Mia Farrow had left a month earlier. She wasn't even in the ashram at that time. She had left on March 7th. And the Beatles did not leave until April 10th. So it had nothing to do with the Pharaoh. That, that was what was reported in the media. It was the Pharaoh and a big deal with her, but it had nothing to do with her. So Roslyn, apparently Maharishi had made a pass at Roslyn. And Alexis Mardis, who was, um, let's just say he was a Beatles associate who happened to be at the ashram. He came there in late March with the express purpose of trying to get the Beatles away from Maharishi, by the way. He admitted that his only reason for coming to India was to split up the Beatles from Maharishi. 
so he and his his paramour, this girl that he was having sex with at the ashram, Rosalind, they spread the rumor that Maharishi had made a pass at her, and then they told the Beatles about it. Um, Alexis, uh, Magic Alex, they called him Magic Alex. He he told the Beatles about it, and um, they debated about it. They got, and then finally he convinced them that it was true. And then the next morning, they left in a big huff. And there was a third reason that the Beatles... Yeah, there was also a third reason why they left, and that didn't come out until 2006. And that was that in 1991, George Harrison asked Deepak Chopra if he could meet with Maharishi. Deepak was very close to Maharishi at that time. He was his golden boy, going around the world spreading transcendental meditation. And uh, George Harrison asked for a private meeting with Maharishi, which which uh, Deepak set up. He was there with George and Maharishi. And, and then George said uh, to Maharishi, I came to apologize. And Maharishi said, for what? And George said, you know why. And Maharishi said, well, tell Deepak the story. So George proceeded to tell Deepak that when they were in India, they uh, people in their uh, entourage, the Beatles' wives and Alexis, Magic Alice and so on, that they were taking drugs and, um, and drinking alcohol. And that was definitely not allowed in the ashram. So Maharishi became infuriated with them and told them to leave. So these are the three main reasons that I go into in great detail in in my book, Maharishi and Me. Uh, I really shortened shortened the story. That's the abridged, the Cliff Notes version of what happened and why the Beatles left India. But you can read the whole story in my book, Maharishi and Me. Well, um, I'm I'm wondering why uh, that guy uh, shows up to separate the Beatles from him. Is it because, you know, they were getting too deep in it and they needed to get work done and, you know, they were too busy um, hanging around the ashram and, uh, you know, they needed him back in the recording studio or, you know, something like that? That's a great question, Karen. What happened was, this character, Magic Alex, they called him Magic Alex because they were all so wowed by him because he claimed that he could invent all these crazy things like uh, like paint that would have stereos that would make things invisible and wallpaper that would have stereo speakers in it and that he could make a house hover, that he could make a... Uh, and levitate, that he could make a recording studio levitate. He kept talking about all these great inventions that he could create and that he was this great inventor. But the reality is that he was a TV repairman. That's what he was. And so the Beatles were really impressed by him. Brian Jones was also. He made a light box for the Rolling Stones that never really functioned properly. He never invented anything, but he bragged about inventing everything. And, in fact, he was put in charge of the of creating the recording studio at Apple, which ended up to be a complete disaster, and they had to sell it all for scrap, and they couldn't use any of it. 
Well, he promised that he would also, he promised Maharishi that he would create a, a radio station on the Ganges River that would broadcast Maharishi's message far and wide and also provide electricity for the entire region. In any case, John Lennon, he, he had attached himself to John Lennon's hip in 1967 and 1968, and he was just basically a groupie. And, but, they, but they liked him. John liked him, and he, they were impressed by him. So John uh, introduced the other Beatles to him, saying, this is my new guru, M- Magic Alice. So he he considered himself to be the Beatles' guru, and he was going to trepan the Beatles' uh, foreheads. He was going to drill a hole in the Beatles' foreheads to open their third eye. So his, his guru status was being threatened by Maharishi, and so his selfish reason for going to India was to get the Beatles away from Maharishi so that he could continue to be their uh, John Lennon's guru. Uh, well, um, well, you know, we, uh, it is crazy, crazy. You know, it, it's, uh, I, I guess, um, you know, I'm a pretty practical down to earth person and I can't even imagine what it must be like to have, um, you know, fans and hangers on like that. Um, uh, it, but, you know, you, you can see the, the good influence the Maharishi uh, at least seemed to have had on the Beatles. I mean, the White Album, I mean, that's just, uh, I, I mean, incredible. I, I mean, I, I can recall, I mean, my husband is a huge fan of the Beatles, uh, me too. And, um, you know, some of their songs that you can just hear uh, the music from India in the background. I mean, it, it's some of their, um, you know, some of my most favorite um, you know, cuts, you know, on, on their albums. It's, I, I, I don't know, I guess, you know, life just gets crazy when you move in these sorts of circles. Um, and um, I don't know, I guess even though the Maharishi, uh, you know, didn't allow drugs and alcohol, I mean, I've had enough shows about uh, sacred hallucinogens, uh, you know, and, and doctors on the show that have said how much, you know, they open your mind and, you know, how they've gotten a bad rap. And I would imagine the, the combination of the hallucinogens and the Maharishi, you know, uh, you know, maybe we can thank both for their wonderful music. I, I don't know. What do you think? You were, you know, you know more about it than me. I'm just uh, a bystander way on the outside, but that's my thought anyway. <laughs> Well, Karen, the Beatles really got heavily into LSD before they met Maharishi. And when they met him on August 24th of 1967 at the Hilton in London, they said to him, you know, we, we really are very serious about experiencing higher states of consciousness, and we tried LSD and that didn't really work. So we really want to experience uh, cosmic consciousness and and... So Maharishi just said to them, you know, it's, it's laudable that the youth desire to have these higher states of consciousness, but drugs really not, are not the way to do that, and meditation is the way. And I found that out myself, too, by the way. I experimented with all the drugs. In fact, unfortunately, LSD, uh, I, I never came down from the drug. 
I was having continual flashbacks. I actually went insane. Um, I went out of my mind. Uh, I had a psychotic, more than a psychotic episode. I had major psychosis for a long time after having taken LSD, and meditation is what saved me. So I'm pretty anti-drug personally. I know that a lot of people do have uh, good experiences with psychedelic drugs, and they do, you know, that was what was promised to us by Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert and, and the book The Psychedelic Experience. So we were into it. I mean, I was an original. <laughs> I was doing it at the time. But unfortunately, right, it didn't right. work out for me. It just didn't work out for me that way. I, yes, I had some experiences. And, in fact, the third LSD trip I had, I was in a very blissful state of consciousness and in deep meditation, and it was uh, profound. But uh, still, I was very glad when I gave up drugs and I learned real meditation. I learned how to meditate and didn't require drugs, and I didn't have to lose any brain cells over it, you know. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Well, you know, thank you for that alternative view, you know. Um, well, I want to, um, you know, uh, shift away from uh, the Beatles uh, for a minute and, uh, you know, move over to the Rolling Stones. Um, there was a particular concert at uh, Altamont Speedway in 69 uh, you wanted to talk about. Um, why, why was that particular concert important? According to the powers that be, I don't know, according to the press, according to the media, that was the end of the hippie era, simply because it was a disaster. We had Woodstock, which was fabulous, and people were all peace and love, and even though it was a mess and it rained and it was all muddy and <laughs> created, created a big mess on, on the guy's field, uh, there was peace and love, and, and people were helping each other. And even though it was completely disorganized, they managed to somehow get get food there and everything. Unfortunately, Altamont was a total disaster. In fact, we had a, a man killed and murdered. We had the uh, Hells Angels that were hired to be security. That was a big mistake. And when their uh, when people were sitting on their uh, on their hogs, they called them hogs on their motorcycles, uh, they would fight them, and they would beat people. And it was a mess, and the vibration was scary. And I was right up there next to the stage during the whole time, the whole concert, and people were swaying, and and I was afraid I was going to get trampled. But really, uh, people, I mean, a guy was murdered. By a hell's angel, and uh, so so was the idea. This was supposed to be like a um, a Woodstock two. Was that the you know the intent going in? But it 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 just went bad. That's correct, Karen. It was supposed to be another peace and love be in. I went to a lot of be ins, by the way, in in the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, we had BNs. Also, believe it or not, at People's Park in Berkeley, Santana used to play there for free. Every week I'd go see Santana. 
uh, it was a different era, and we would go to the Avalon Ballroom and Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco and rock out to the bands, and these were all be-ins and love-ins. And so this was supposed to be another love-in, be-in kind of thing, and a, a happening, what we call a happening. And, and it was going to be like Woodstock, but unfortunately it wasn't. It was just a bad vibe, yeah. scary, scary, scary event. And it was like a mob scene and very scary for the musicians. The uh, stage was not high enough for proper security. Anybody could just just jump up onto the stage. And it was hard to keep people from doing that. And the Hells Angels were trying to keep people away. But it was uh, it was a bad scene, and very very frightening and uh, and sad. It was just sad. So it, it kind of marked the end of an era. It sounds like. Correct, correct, and that is the reason why uh, you why it, it is significant because it was the they didn't really do any kinds of conscious after that of that kind of scale because it was um it was dangerous and frightening yeah yeah well um shifting gears again a little bit um you know kind of moving forward um you know i am I'm, I'm trying to think uh, you know in terms of of the now um and and you've given a, a, an awful lot of examples of you know how the 60s influenced today um i i wonder you know as you look back in hindsight um or you know if i don't know if the maharishi you know was any more prophetic you know, beyond, you know, how he saw the popularity of meditation grow. Um, but I wonder, um, you know, what are your thoughts of the, I mean, do you think where we're at is sort of the natural evolution of things? I mean, do you think we got uh, sidetracked, um you know, I, I mean, I know there are people who say even Donald Trump is playing his part, um, you know, as a as a catalyst for, uh, you know, mobilizing people, you know, uh, you know, uh, about the corruption. You know, it uh, it's all become so transparent now. You know, he, even he was necessary to get people up off the couch. And I guess I just I, I wonder if you have thoughts about that, you know, kind of looking at the big picture, you know, not just about Trump, but just where we've evolved to since, you know, what, um, what is it, 40, 60 years ago? Yeah, I mean, it's a long time ago. It's the 50th anniversary of Altamont, for example, is December 6th, just a few days ago. Yeah, it's a different world now. And in my mind, a much better world. Uh, there are no major wars going on. Uh, the only thing we have to complain about is, is <laughs> different personalities, uh, politicians, <laughs> movie stars. <laughs> That's all we have to complain about and gossip about now. We don't have uh, kids coming, millions of children coming back in body bags from foreign lands. So it's a really different world today, and uh, so much better world. Uh, I'm so so gratified and and happy about the fact that 
this world is now so much interested in spiritual enlightenment, in, in developing higher consciousness. Metaphysics is something that's accessible to everyone with the Internet. And, I mean, this type of knowledge was not accessible at all. There was two esoteric bookstores in the entire country in 1950 and no esoteric books in the mainstream bookstores, and there was no Internet. And today, anybody well, can it, go online and, and meditate, you know? True, true. And, and, I mean, I remember there were only three television channels, you know. Um, yeah, so, I mean, things have changed drastically. Well, you know, and I'm also thinking about that phrase you used from, you know, from back then, uh, tune in, turn on, drop out. And the dropout part kind of jumped out at me uh, because I just got finished reading Susan Blackie's book, If Women Rose Rooted. And she's talking in that book about how uh, she's really kind of, you know, putting this call out to women to really sort of drop out of this, you know, patriarchal world we live in, you know, drop out of this, um, you know, this desire for, you know, capitalistic aims, you know, uh, be more connected to nature, be more connected to your authentic self, you know, give up the nine to five grind where your our lives are so out of balance. And I don't know, when I heard you say that, I couldn't help but think that there's a connection there. <laughs> Yes, Karen, there's a big connection there. That's exactly what Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert were saying back then. That's exactly what they meant by drop out. Drop out of the gray flannel suit. Drop out of the the establishment, what they call, what we used to call the establishment. Drop out of the nine to five grind. That is, get back to nature. It's all about back to nature. That's what the entire revolution of the hippie flower children was about was back to nature revolution. Yeah. So Timothy Leary, you know, I mean, honestly, I have to admit, I haven't done my homework, but he seems like he's such a controversial fella. Um, I mean, was he a good guy or was he a bad guy? Or like most people, was he kind of gray? I think everybody's gray, including Maharishi. <laughs> So, you know, we're human beings. We're not God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, was he so, um, was he such a threat because of his message, because of, you know, he was talking about the benefits of LSD, this idea of dropping out and being against the establishment. Um, But then I think I heard he was working for the CIA and stuff like that. I mean, um, do you have any idea what the truth of it was? I actually don't know the true story about Timothy Leary. I'm sorry to say. I, I mean, back in the 60s, I, I saw him, I met him, I, I heard him talk, and he was espousing LSD as the answer to uh, all of our problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, you know, this has been interesting and, and fun. Um, uh, you know, we're almost out of time. Uh, well, we are sort of, but, you know, I want to give you the last word here. Uh, you know, is there anything I haven't thought to ask you that, um, you know, you feel like you want to, you know, say about our topic tonight? 
Well, I just want to give people a, a bit of hope here because uh, I see so much good in the world now. And I know people complain about politics and all this and that, but it's nothing. I mean, compared to what it used to be in the 20th century, we are living in paradise. And I want everyone to understand that you create your own heaven, you create your own hell. Your mind is what's creating everything. So understand that there, there is a higher consciousness on this planet now than there used to be. And the negative atmosphere, the stress in the atmosphere that used to cover this planet, the astral cloud that used to cover this planet, has been thinned, very, very thinned now. And we have much more access to spiritual experiences and spiritual levels, higher levels of consciousness and to uh, the invisible world. And that is because of the revolution of the 1960s that changed the world. Well, and, and, uh, and, you know, and, and just I'll add one other thing, uh, and I might be wrong about this. It's just my perspective. Um, you know, I think people used to be a lot more naive back then. And, um, you know, we've had the Kennedy assassination, so many things uh, we've, we've seen and lived through. Um, and yeah. I, I don't know, I think it's a good thing that we're not so naive. You know, we're maybe becoming more evolved and, and things are becoming more transparent, more people, even though there's still a lot of ignorance out there. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot more people who are, um, what's the expression they use now? A lot more people are woke. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I agree completely, Karen. And um, yeah, yeah. And I would say, you know, learn how to meditate, folks. Uh, you're contributing more to world peace by meditating than by any other means. That is the one way that you can actually make a difference in this world is to do some form of meditation, prayer, affirmation, anything that gets you into a state of consciousness where you're feeling more self-empowered, where you're feeling uh, more yourself, uh, where you're expressing your true self. That's the way to go. And, um, and I'll just give a plug for my book, Maharishi and Me, called Maharishi and Me Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. I think you'll enjoy it, and uh, you'll learn a lot about developing higher consciousness through that book. Well, and you also have a bunch of other books that I mentioned, but I'll just direct people to your websites, uh, drsusan.org or divinetravels.com. Um, you know, it, and I like what you said, you know, I mean, uh, even though, you know, we're afraid of uh, global warming, you know, income inequality, crazy president, uh, you know, with his uh, hand on the button, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I like that you said, uh, we're, in spite of all of that, we're in such a better place. And, um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, the world is how we see it. Uh, and I think maybe uh, a lot of us are seeing the glasses half uh, empty when it's really uh, half full. It, it, uh, I, I think that's maybe another way to say um, what you said, Susan. Would you agree? I completely agree, Karen. Absolutely agree. 
All right. Well, listen, thank you for a fun show, and uh, best of luck with, with your books. Thank you for uh, your contribution to uh, making the world a better place. Uh, you're certainly doing your share, Susan. <laughs> well, thanks so much for inviting me, Karen. I had, a, I had a blast. I had a great time talking with you. Thank you. Oh, all right. We'll keep in touch. Great. Well, that about uh, that about does it for our show tonight, uh, listeners. Uh, I want to just uh, tell you that uh, we have some wonderful shows coming up. I've been working very hard uh, to book some incredible guests uh, in the next couple months. Uh, I think uh, you know I am going to blow you away uh, with some of the uh, with some of the topics. Uh, I'll just give you uh, the name of a few here. Um, We're going to be doing uh, Rosicrucian America, How a Secret Society Influenced the Destiny of a Nation. Uh, We're going to be doing a special show uh, on the 26th, uh, Goddess in the Bible. And uh, I know you might know a good bit about where Goddess shows up in the Bible, but I promise you, uh, you're going to find out about uh, stuff you have never heard of before. Uh, We have a show coming up called uh, Love uh, Activism. Um, I'm going to have uh, uh, Lynn uh, Picknett and uh, Clive Prince uh, on the show. You know, they've been on television. They've written a number of books. Uh, they're going to be talking about uh, when God had a wife. Um, uh, we're going to be doing uh, problem solving uh, when you sleep. Um, let's see what else. Um, let me see what else. I'm trying to put my hands on it. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, Dominionist Christianity uh, in Opus Dei. Um, I, I mean, just uh, we're going to be talking about prosperity gospels and, uh, you know, how that contributes to greed and capitalism. Um, it, it, there's going to be a lot, a lot, a lot uh, of great shows uh, coming out. Uh, I'm going to have Manda Scott coming on the show. We're going to be talking about women warriors through time, uh, Boudica, Joan of Arc, um, and... Uh, you know, the women of the special operations executive. Um, I mean, and these are just off the top of my head. Um, A lot, a lot of great shows are coming up. So uh, you want to make sure you click that follow button uh, so that you get notice of the weekly show in your email inbox. That will make it so much easier for you. Then you don't have to remember uh, to tune into Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Uh, So uh, that Uh, that's about all for tonight Uh, I will be back with you uh, next week and um, I believe I have uh, uh, Laura Perry is also a guest before the end of the year Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Minoan Crete and uh, the new uh, Minoan tradition uh, that's growing by leaps and bounds Uh, so you don't want to miss any of this Uh, I think you know there's a lot of good stuff there so um, so yeah so tune in, and um, I hope you're having a great time, uh, you know, this, uh, this holiday season. Uh, and remember, you know, make your own traditions. Uh, you don't need to be an uber consumer. You don't need to conform. Um, you know, remember what the season is about. You know, this is the time of the year when we're supposed to be going into the dark, when we're supposed to be marinating, when we're supposed to be rejuvenating, when we're supposed to be thinking about 
you know, the uh, the previous 11 months and what worked and what didn't work so that we can, you know, reinvent ourselves and, uh, you know, become closer to our authentic self when the sun returns, you know, at the beginning of the year. So don't buy into, uh, you know, all the Black Fridays and Purple Saturdays and, um, you know, we were not here, uh, you know, to be consumers. You know, that is not... Uh, what life is supposed to be about. So, you know, give yourself permission. Have the courage to make new traditions and, uh, you know, not just uh, fall in line. So, all right. Well, uh, I've said enough about that. Um, you know, you do what you have to do to make yourself happy. Uh, and I am happy for you being a listener here. You are the gas in my tank. Um, thank you so much. And until next week, uh, this is Karen Tate, uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, Radio. Good night. <laughs>